from my perspective, when we're talking about students going into pupil referral units, what we are then effectively talking about is putting them onto that sort of what I like to call a first a first class train ticket to the school to prison pipeline. I'm Neil Maggs, and this is Bristol Unpacked, speaking to fascinating Bristolians on topics where others may fear to tread. Brought to you by the city's community-owned media, the Bristol Cable. In this week's episode of Bristol Unpacked, it's all about school exclusions. In a country where you are five times more likely to be excluded if you are black and ten times more likely if you are Roma and Irish traveller. We talked to Lana Crosby, founder of No More Exclusions, which is a black-led anti-racist organisation that believes in doing away with school exclusions completely. She's a senior school leader, race specialist and a quality campaigner with over 20 years experience teaching in schools. So why does she want to get rid of them? What would we replace them with? And how do we change that alarming data so schools become more anti-racist? And who's to blame? Is it the national curriculum? Is it the government? Is it schools? Or is it teachers themselves? We explore that in this episode of Bristol Unpacked. And don't forget, if you do want to become a member of the Bristol Cable, do jump on our website and join us and pay money every month to shape the media in the city. And don't forget to like and subscribe to Bristol Unpacked. Uh, thanks for coming on. Um, it, it, it's, it's great to get you on because I think it's quite a big um, sort of zeitgeist topic, really, mm-hmm. um, which has been in not just the local but a, across the national media. So it's quite a, it's sort of a national story that has local context, specifically around um, school exclusions mm-hmm. and the, the disproportionate uh, amount of particularly young black boys um, being excluded yeah. and sort of exploring why that is what kind of measures schools are or in fact aren't taking sure. um, and and how we can start to, you know, explore that topic, but think of some solutions um, to, to, to that kind of issue. And it's a subject that you have, um, you know, you've, you've got lived experience. You've been involved in education for a long time. You set mm-hmm. up your own organization called No More Exclusions. Mm-hmm. Before we drip into uh, and go right into the detail of, of, of that organization, I'm really interested about you yourself. Okay. Um, what made you become involved in in um, in education and specifically in this area of of education? Was it something that you had experience of yourself at school? Um, it's not something I personally experienced, um, but I have brothers, and many of my brothers experienced this. Um, one or two of my sons also experienced it. So okay. I've. I understand from a parental or familial, should I say, link, yeah. what it's like to have that experience, but also with the extra lens of seeing it through the family of black children and black families, what the impact that that's had. And in my background in psychology, I'd spent time working with young people in that area too, more okay. in a sort of uh, therapeutic sort of setting. Um, and I knew that I wanted to use my passion for psychology and people and education I wanted to teach people the things that I knew and the things that I knew would make a difference to their lives and that felt the way to do that was to work with young people but I knew I didn't want to work with primary school children I wanted to work with teenagers because I felt that teenagers were most at risk Mm -hmm. um 
obviously, I say obviously, but over time that's changed. And actually we're seeing some of these behaviours and some of these punishments in uh, primary schools as well now. So over time, the, the course of that has changed. I've always worked in that age group as well. So I've I've always I've spent time in primary schools um, throughout training, for example. But mm. my I would say my specialism, if you like, and where I've always been is secondary and, and the post-16 sector as well. So when they finish their GCSEs, they're going on to do level threes or A-level programs. I think we've got to a point where we realise that the young people that are coming through now are very different to the young people that maybe came through, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago. Mm. And a lot of that, from my perspective, is is to do with things such as social media and, you know, these imminent changes, you know, things can be posted within a minute, within a second, it's, it can be everywhere. So they're under very different pressures. So the mental health of young people now is very different and it also has a different profile than it had many years ago. And I think we're seeing in schools now that sometimes that classroom environment for lots of different reasons, including some that I've outlined, are not necessarily the most positive for the students and actually what they need is they still need support and education but they need it in a different environment yeah or they need it in a different way at a different time and I always talk to my students about us all being on a motorway and I say well look there's three lanes you've got the fast lane technically the fast lane the middle lane slow lane we're all going in the same direction but sometimes you need to switch lanes you know sometimes you need to be doing something a little bit different so it may be that you don't a student for example doesn't work as effectively in my room at certain to- at certain points or at certain topics but with the help of somebody else they're going to just completely transform and sometimes it means doing a little bit of both like make they used to do um release into college where a young person could go into college and do i don't know for example again one of my brothers i can remember him doing um mechanics and stuff yeah like that. yeah yeah you know and for those two three days he was out he it was amazing for him and then you put him back in school it was a real hardship but it wasn't because he wasn't academically capable he just found the confines of the classroom and the structure yeah. of school really hard mm-hmm. um so i think we're now seeing more of how to put those two things together and also then be able to give a positive outcome for that young person because we want to increase their life chances not limit them and sometimes sure. you've got to do things differently. And there's more recognition of that now. I'm not saying it's consistent, but it's certainly out there and there's more awareness of that now than there might have been a while back when we, when I first started teaching or when you were in youth work. Sure. Let's talk about um, exclusions. Mm-hmm. And before we go into some of the, some of the data around this, for, for some people of a certain age listening, they may not know what a sort of a permanent exclusion, a temporary exclusion, that the language and terminology has changed sure. from years ago. So it yeah. would be, I guess it's what people call expel, being expelled or being <laughs> yeah, yeah, suspended. Mean, yeah, yeah but I guess back when, not to portray your age, but maybe back <laughs> when we were younger, it yeah. would be expulsions, which just doesn't sound great, does it? Um mm-hmm. But when we're talking about a permanent exclusion, that's when a young person is no longer allowed to return to the school. So they've left the school um, and they are not able to return. Um, They can go to another school. They can go to another school, yeah, but they can't go back to the one where they've been permanently excluded from. Yeah, That would often come as a result of something really serious, you know, that's seen as a, a personal threat in terms of safety to the student like themselves and or others um, or something which grossly 
um, and I use that term loosely because that's something we can come on to, grossly um, goes against the behaviour policies of the school and the, the sort of ethos of the school. Um, then you have what's called fixed term exclusions. And yeah. fixed term means, for example, I could come in tomorrow and I don't know, um, I don't know, push a chair over and hurt somebody. So yeah. I could be asked to stay home for two days because I've contravened the behaviour policy. And then on uh, the third day, I'll go back in and have what's called a reintegration meeting with my teacher, usually a member of SLT, which is a senior leadership team, um, and probably a parent or a carer. And then I'll come back into school and it will be a sort of, have you understood what you've done wrong? Do you understand we can't have this happening again? And that can happen quite a few times over a year. Now, in Bristol, uh, that can't happen for more than 45 days in any one school year. So if we're getting up to 45 days of fixed term exclusion, and that means a day here, two days there, three days there, depending on what the young person's done. Once we're hitting up to the 45 days, that's now becoming a problem because the the basically the Bristol City Council rules are you can't you shouldn't be doing that because obviously something's not working um, if you're having to fix term exclude this young person over and over again. Yeah. Now, where the terminology has changed is that the government last year changed the phrasing from um, exclusions to suspensions. Oh, they've got. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, it's a fixed. Because that would be the language that would have been used, um, you know, back in the day. Somebody was suspended. It was a temporary thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You and I would know that as, oh, you'll be back in in another day or two. But now that fixed term is now gone to suspensions. I think. I mean, my personal opinion is probably because it just it doesn't sound as bad, but it's still the same thing. It's still the same process. Sure. Um, And then, how many? And when you get to a stage where uh, a um, a pupil has perhaps been uh permanently excluded from yeah. two three or four four schools yeah is the process still then they will go to like a pupil referral unit is <clears throat> yeah, that still is I that mean, still around is that almost yeah. like the end result so the pupil, of that yeah the pupil referral units are still um still in process and if a young person they can go to a pupil referral unit potentially after the first exclusion the permanent one if it was deemed that that's where their needs can be met and that phrase comes up quite a lot meeting their needs so it may be that that young person has needs which is felt that um being in a pupil referral unit which is where there are potentially smaller classes um smaller amount of staff smaller amounts of students so that they'll probably in theory get more attention they can get more support um and it can be done in a slightly different way um, those are still available, but they will often come at the end of the line where, as you're inferring, you know, you've had this happen once or twice or possibly longer, and therefore there is no other schools for you to go to now. So you will have to go to these um, provisions. And, the you know, there are obviously some great ones, but there are also some that are not great. And from my perspective, when we're talking about students going into pupil referral units, what we are then effectively talking about is putting them onto that sort of what I like to call a first a first class train ticket to the school to prison pipeline. Let's talk about that. That's, as you say that, so uh, pupils excluded from school yeah. uh, at the age of 12 are four times as likely as other That's children right. to be jailed yep. when they're as an adult. Mm-hmm. Uh, in prison, adult prison, more than six in 10 prisoners have That's been right. excluded from school. Yeah, Four in 10 have, had, have been permanently 
excluded. Absolutely. Yeah. The um, what did you call it? The prison to the prison school pipeline. To prison pipeline. School to yeah. prison pipeline. Yeah. That's um that's quite alarming. Those stats, aren't they? So I guess that I guess the Definitely. the point is, it's it, is it working? Um, from my perspective, no. I think what we are doing is we are taking young people whose needs are complex or nuanced and we are just pushing the sort of the problem sideways. So I look at mm. it as a young person leaves my school for whatever reason the principal has decided we can no longer meet this young person's needs. We've tried everything we can. Um, this young person cannot be here anymore. What we are doing is essentially pushing that that issue, if you like, inverted commas, onto another school to manage. So this young person is now going to be bouncing around. Mm. Now, I do need to contextualise that by saying there are times where a young person will leave a school and they might go to a pupil referral unit or they may go to another secondary school or primary school because, as I said, this is happening in primaries as well now. Yeah. Um, and they may they may fly, you know. It may be that that environment just genuinely wasn't the right one for them. Yeah, and there are and maybe the issue, stories. some of the issues that was yeah. affecting them was 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 to do with the dynamics that were. Yeah, in that and I think school, it's, yeah. I think it's important to give that balance that we're not talking about every child who has ever been moved from a school, but we are saying that it. From my perspective, I just think it's our civic responsibility to try and get to the root of the problem and support the young person, not yeah. just pass the parcel on to somebody else. And I'm looking forward and thinking we will look back and think, why did we ever do that? Why were we doing that? So I don't think you need to exclude. I think we need schools to have the resources they need to support the young people. I think we need to understand that it's not enough to just um, come up with these zero tolerance policies and say, well, if, you know, child A follows the policy, we won't have a problem. There are so many reasons why child A may struggle to follow and not conform to that policy. Yeah, let's get let's get on get on to that in a bit about the yeah the kind of the I guess it's the the whole sort of um, debate around uh, kind of behaviour versus mm. sort of understanding where somebody's coming from and yep. having a sort of more nuanced understanding of, of somebody's um, you know it could be home life, could be culture, could be sure. could be anything really, uh, and yeah. just not necessarily seeing the behaviour as a sort of symptom of something that's that's deeper. Um, are teachers really? My, my question would be, and I, yeah. ugh, this is a bit harsh on the on. teaching profession, but I'll do it anyway. <laughs> and I have worked with teachers in the past. You know, if you if you've done a degree, so so yeah. I could do a a degree in geography, mm-hmm. yeah, and I could grow up in, I could go to a sort of a, a public school, sure, um, in the leafy shires. I could do a degree in geography and then I could just do a one year PGCE. Yeah. Uh, and then I'm a geography teacher and I'm chucked straight into an inner city school. I've grown up in a white leafy kind of area and I'm in an inner city yeah. multi multicultural school with you know in a world and an environment that I've never experienced and suddenly sure. I'm teaching young people that I have no real understanding of their lives. That yeah. that, that that actually does happen, doesn't it? That's just the disaster, isn't it? I mean that is the reality. You are not telling a lie when you describe what you've just described now that might not be the same for everybody but if we start to talk about eventually well, i'm sure we will at some point what are some of the um solutions part of that is the teacher training um you yeah. have people coming into the profession as you quite rightly described you get a degree you get your pgc and then you're thrown into your first year it is hard it is it is challenging and often mm. i mean i've worked with somebody who said to me Um, and she was much older to be fair and she said oh I'm really worried about working with these uh, young black children 
Yeah. And I was a bit sort of, what? <laughs> when she said it. Yeah. Um, because from my perspective, I've, you know, Bristol's very multicultural. So it just sure. hadn't occurred to me that this would be something someone would say. Yeah. And she was like, well, like, you know, I just, I don't want to say the wrong thing. I don't want to do the wrong thing. But, you know, I've only ever worked in schools where they're largely white. So I'm not sure I can manage an inner city school. This was a, a long time ago. And that kind of took me back and it made me realise that the PGCEs and what we call the initial teacher training programmes are not necessarily preparing teachers for multicultural classrooms, but also multi-need classrooms. So you get get given a lot of theory about behaviour, you get given a lot of theory about teaching and learning, but nothing really prepares you in Mm. those lectures for walking into a room of like 25 kids on a, I don't know, a Thursday afternoon at three o'clock it's the last lesson of the day and it's year eight and they just don't want to play ball and you don't know what to do I think yeah I mean a year's um you know a year's learning of anything doesn't always prepare you for 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 something let alone that and I think that I think that's probably and in fairness to a lot of teachers they probably think well, I just want to teach my subject. I'm passionate yeah. about geography, for the example I use. Absolutely. I didn't realise I had to do all this stuff as well. I've got to be like a yeah. social worker, a kind of youth yeah. worker. I've got to sort of be a child psychologist. Mm-hmm. I've got to do this, that, you know. This is stuff that's um, complicated and nuanced and takes a long time to understand and learn. And so it, it, so really, the, you know, sort of teachers are being sort of set up for failure in some regards. It's kind of not their fault a little yeah. bit. Yeah. I would say I would say that there's some truth to that statement that the preparation is not good enough, um, which is why there are now, well, I say there's now there's a lot of movement towards, for example, anti-racist teaching, yeah. um, teaching send, which is special educational needs. You know, some of that really on the ground work that you're going to need to feel confident or at the very least capable of managing. You will mm. develop your confidence and your competency over time, of course, but you need to go in knowing that these are the things that you might face. Those things are becoming more prominent and there's less around some of the theory stuff, which is like, you know, years old, which is great if you want to have this kind of esoteric kind of discussion with someone where only a small amount of people know what you're talking about. But if you really want to go into that classroom and be an effective practitioner, you need some of that real hands-on help. We've obviously had Aisha Thomas, uh, who... um... It made it was involved in making a documentary about lack of black black teachers in Bristol. She's gone on to write a book. Um, there aren't enough black teachers for one. Uh, it's always been a bit of a bugbear of mine seeing in in the city schools as well, uh, uh, which I would be working with um, members of staff that aren't teachers. Quite a high proportion of of um, people from the community, often black, uh, but a really really low proportion of teachers um, that are. Um, in an area which is a really, really high percentage. I mean, in some schools like City Academy, City Academy, seventy to eighty percent um, people people of color, and 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 I think that so there's that, and also I think that the I've always not quite understood Lana why um, schools haven't kind of targeted or been uh, what's the word been um, you know just been kind of direct with trying to actively target people in the local area that might be youth workers or football coaches or whatever, and then put them through training, like, you know, in-house training rather, rather than somebody coming in from outside of the area. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. 
Because you mean, have an understanding of the local area and the people then, don't you? I think, well, I would agree. Um, and I'm always calling for community leaders and people in the community to be able to come and work with young people because they know, those, and often those young people are their young people, so they know them really well. Yeah, they'll know the brothers, the uncles. The, the, you know, and this, and that's, that's the sort of thing where I think, dare I say, youth work is a little bit ahead of the curve with teachers. Yeah, that's always been the case in youth work. It's the local community pied pipers and you find them, you train them up and then, you know, those people are gold dust. I think part of the problem is the idea that um with teaching for example we the way in which we recruit it, it's very kind of traditional yeah and actually there are many different ways into teaching now um, there, there is more now because it was always yeah. traditionally either a bachelor of arts three or sorry four-year degree or a degree in a postgraduate a pgce yeah. postgraduate teaching diploma that's changing now yeah that is yeah it's a Good. little bit right. more it's, well, I wouldn't say fluid. That might be that make it sound too fluid, but it's a little bit uh, accessible. It's more accessible now, um, and therefore we can get different types of people coming in. People who changing careers, That's you good. know, yeah. from for example, I you know I'm currently working with someone who used to be a prison officer. Great, and yeah. they're now working in the school. And the work that that person can do with young people is amazing because they can see it through a different lens because they also yeah. see it through transferable skills, it isn't it? Like you know, when it comes yeah. to you know, when that when that young person's left your provision and it hasn't gone well, and they are on that school to prison pipeline, I've seen the other end. So their, you know, their work is is and can be transformational. So we are getting more of those um, types of candidates coming through, but we do have an issue around representation. We do have an issue around the fact that um, a recent report showed that it's not that there aren't enough black teachers coming in it's just that they're not getting accepted onto courses and that was the really interesting bit so when you when you mentioned recruitment earlier I think it's really keen uh, sorry key I beg your pardon for me to put out there that a recent report that was um, published showed that actually there are quite a few black and brown um, graduates who want to go into teaching but they don't get accepted onto the programs so then you are going to continue to have a lack of representation in your educational workforce beyond the you know the people who are working in the canteen or the grounds people and those jobs are equally as important for different reasons but we also need our, our young people to see and be aspirational and see black leaders black and brown leaders one of my students who left a few years ago after he'd done his a-levels wrote me a really lovely email and you know the long and short of it was thanks miss i'm so glad i had a black teacher you don't know how happy i was when you walked into the room because it just made me know that this was going to be a lot easier. So, you know, those kind of messages that come through and, you know, messages, oh, I now know it's possible, so I'm going to keep pushing. Thank you for believing in me and thank you for understanding, which is from other students. It demonstrates that they feel an affinity. They feel a, um, a likeness. They feel um, supported. They feel seen. They feel heard. And when those people are not there, to be that voice or to be that support in those roles, not just the supporting roles, but in the leadership roles as well. It just shows that you don't belong or we don't want you. And that's really hard for some people to hear because they think, no, it doesn't. That's not how it is. But as a lived experience, as a black student myself at one point, I could tell you absolutely that's what it means. Those people you talk about that will be sure. a little bit on the back foot, um, yeah. sort of suddenly becoming, uh, if not slightly, uh, if not sort of, enlightened overnight you know i'm cynical mm -hmm. and i'm cynical about this um perhaps they're not vocalizing what they would say or would think 
but that's more a, a bit problem, now. isn't it? That's for yeah, me. That's more yeah. of an issue because I don't, I don't want these these people that we're referring to who might be. Um, I think it was Martin Luther King who said you've got to worry about your white moderate, not your neo-Nazi yeah. types. You know, because I know where I yeah. am with that type. I know the person. There's an honesty, isn't there? There's a directness, there, isn't there? My yeah. face. Okay, yeah. Yeah. I get it. Whereas the person who says, "Oh yeah, you know, I don't mind you, but obviously you really do mind me." Um, we don't want them to be quiet. What we want is, I want to, what we want to do is work with you. We want to educate you. We want to help you to understand our perspective. That's and- kind of one of the problems a little bit yeah. with some of this sort of sudden post Colston world in Bristol, where I think that people are probably a bit like, oh God, I can't say that. I can't do that. And this sort of yeah. treading on eggshells bit. But absolutely. actually, as you say, that isn't what people want. No, yeah, that isn't what, you know, I know. Anywhere. We're not going to move yeah. forward if we keep walking around on eggshells. And I think, yeah. yeah, I think as a result of the George Floyd um, murder and the mm-hmm. explosion of Black Lives Matters onto an international level, it's become more heightened. It's awakened. I think people are coming forward a bit more and saying how they feel from black and brown backgrounds as well as white backgrounds. Yeah. I think there's a lot of terminology that's banded around that people don't understand, but also can feel quite offensive. It can mm-hmm. feel very finger pointing, um, yeah. derisory. So, you know, things like white supremacy, white fragility, allyship, white you know, yeah. white privilege. People yeah. are, oh, are you saying I'm privileged? No, I'm just saying you've never had to worry about your color. That's what yeah. I'm saying. Yeah. You know, and it's that kind of people getting very defensive. And actually, if we just sat down and talked it through, I think we're all trying to say the same thing. I can yeah. remember our colleague once said to me, oh, well, this hasn't really been a problem until this month. And I was like, yeah, God, what do you mean? Know. George Floyd dying, all of a sudden yeah. you've realised racism is bad. He yeah. said, oh, well, no, I'm not saying that. You literally just said racism has only just started. Where have you been for the last 400 years, at the very least? Yeah. Just jump in there and tell you about the Bristol Cable. We are looking for members, so if you're interested, you can jump on our website, chuck a pound in, five pound, whatever you want every month, and you can get a chance to have a say in the type of stories we tell, who we interview, the topics we cover, and you can be involved in meetings and AGMs and stuff. So if you're up for that, then uh, jump on the website and do have a look. And back to the chat. treatment of black people in schools and I mean black and brown we're talking anti-blackness as well so we're talking about colorism you know the idea of light-skinned people being getting it a little bit easier than darker-skinned people and there there is definitely privilege there and well light it's funny to say light-skinned privileged is something that's is um, spoken about in some other countries, but not Absolutely. here yet. It hasn't quite caught. People talk about it in, in the Caribbean, don't they? Don't, yeah, people they don't do, talk yeah. about it so much here. Yeah. You know, I'm quite privy to those conversations a little bit from, you know, from where I grew up and whatever. But yeah, I think sure. that the, um, it's something that is, it, it does take place within the black community, but it's not it really does. come out within the white world a little bit that, has it? No, the, it the, doesn't. The no, sense and I think that that's... the black people that get pushed forward generally, yeah. um, really the feeling hard. and leadership are those that are lighter skinned. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And there's definitely an issue around the fact that when you are lighter skinned, you know, this idea that, oh, it's easier for you. I can tell you for a fact, my proximity to whiteness doesn't make it easier. It's different, but doesn't make it easier because there is, there's almost like um, having a foot in both camps, if you like, or being seen to be lighter means that it's easier. Absolutely not. I mean, it's different. 
And we've got young people coming through now with these questions, you know, and they want to have these discussions and we need teachers and educators. Mm-hmm. I'd like to change it and say educators, because I think it's educators, anybody in yeah. school involved. They have to be comfortable. I mean, I, I you know, as a, that, yeah. as, a, as a white person, when I sometimes hear conversations around race, I'm, uh, I, 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 I cringe yeah. often, if I'm honest, because I think you can see... And people that are educating, you know, as you in your own words, and educators to young people are clumsily moving their way through, you know, and it is a tricky topic for some, but they haven't really formulated their own views and their own mind on it. And they're teaching other people, which is slightly problematic, which leads me on to this key point, which is um, on exclusion, Mm. the uh, rates, uh, if you're a black Caribbean pupil, yeah. you are five times more likely in some if you live in some parts of this country yeah. to be permanently excluded. Absolutely. Five times. Is that perhaps lack of cultural awareness, understanding, uh, lack of lived experience, like we said about teachers growing up in leafy suburbs? Yeah. Um, clumsily making our way for it you know not necessarily having that connection like you said about earlier that, yeah. that, that, that when people have a black teacher there's there's that the people writing to you saying how great that was it how much of a contributory factor is the teaching profession not being either a as representative and diverse enough mm-hmm. and b being trained and skilled enough in understanding into these statistics um, well, it, it's it's everything you've just said in equal measure, really. I mean, representation's key for all the reasons we've outlined on on this um, call already. But also in terms of uh, teacher training, anti-racism isn't something that is explicitly taught in the PGCE, which is your teacher training programmes, or what we call initial teacher training programmes. It has been now, and it's becoming something now, but I mean, it... If I'm honest, at times it's kind of like having a guest lecturer coming for the afternoon, talks about some stuff, and then that's it. That's the box ticked. That's not yeah. enough. Well, this so, is the thing. On your website, you say, and I think people are beginning to cotton on to this. Well, not, you know, white yeah. people are beginning to cotton on to this stuff, is that it's not enough just to be, you know, um, it's not enough to sort of think a little bit about wanting greater representation, diversity, no, you know. Da, da, da. It's about being anti-racist. There's an, you, you've got a it's, quote it's, from Angela Davis on your website. It says, yeah, in a racist society, action, it? it is not enough to be non-racist. Yeah, we must be, be anti-racist. anti-racist. For the uninitiated, what's the difference? So, you know, a non-racist is somebody who's like, oh, I would never say that. I wouldn't do that. Great. An anti-racist hears it and then says, you can't say that. You shouldn't say that. The reason why that's wrong is... And then they come up, they stand up and they say something. We can all be bystanders. Do you know what I mean? We can all sort of go, oh, that was terrible. Did you see that happen over there? But you don't actually do anything. If you're an anti-racist, you'll go over and you'll do something. And if you don't feel empowered in the moment because maybe you're feeling a bit conflicted, there are so many different ways that you can still manage that situation in that day and still make sure that you've done what you need to do, which is say, that's an injustice and that's not okay. So if a school is not anti-racist, say if a school yeah. is non-racist, because I don't think that many schools would accept that. I mean, I don't know. I'll ask you. Do you think the education system is um, is racist or is inst- yes. you know, is you do? So yeah. would you would you draw a distinction between it being racist and institutionally racist, or would you just say it's the same thing? I'd say it's institutional racism that drives what's going on at the moment, and I think that there's a lot of training around phrases like unconscious bias. Yeah. And I get to a point sometimes where I think, well, you'd have to be in a coma for the most of your life if you're still unconscious bias now. 
Do you know what I mean? Like, you, how can you not see it? So, for example, if I give you an example around exclusions, if a, if a young boy, and this has happened in my time as a teacher, has yeah. been excluded from school on a fixed term, which means they were out for a few days and back in because they kissed their teeth. You know, they were in a math test or something and they were really annoyed with themselves and kissed their teeth. Um, and they got excluded. And there was a white child in that test who swore a profanity, said something out loud. And that child didn't leave, but the black boy um, was fixed term excluded. So when I asked the teacher, why did you do that? And they said, well, you know, he, he did it at me. And I said, but you weren't at the front of the class and the, the young person was in the row in the test. Yeah, but he looked at me when he did it and it was disrespectful. And I said, well, what about child B? I said, oh, well, they were just a bit upset and frustrated with themselves. I mean, where, where do I go with that other than to think this is now an institutionally racist problem? That and that's also a fundamental. Is it, is, it is an institutional racist problem, and and it's also a fundamental misunderstanding Absolutely. of uh, of any real understanding no, of, no of, of culture, or yeah, or, or just kind of not being subjected or around to that Absolutely. kind. Of, and I'll, I'll give you a, give you a good example, and and, and it's it's a, it's a Somali uh, boy um, uh, used used to work with that um, was being uh, was being told off by by a teacher. Um, and he was shouting at him, telling him to look at me. Why are you not looking at me? He's being disrespectful. And he wouldn't look at him. And then it had to be explained afterwards that you don't do that in small. You don't, if, it, if it's your elder, it's a sign of disrespect to eyeball somebody. So that was just a really, really, really crystal clear example of somebody that's applying a certain set of values and behaviours to something that he sort of, in his world, is is one way, there's not another. And I think there's a number of those clumsy, clunky things that happen if you haven't got people that are clued up. So it's five times higher black Caribbean pupils. Sure. Right, so one thing I want to kind of try and sort of just challenge a little bit on is this notion if, if if the curriculum or schools are institutionally racist, if you think about um, exclusions or education attainment, Mm -hmm. um, there isn't a high proportion of, uh, there is a high proportion of black Caribbean pupils, but a less high proportion of say black West African, Ghanaian, Nigerian or South Asian, Indian, Pakistani um, pupils. Mm -hmm. Um, why, Why is that? Do you think? I would say that's where it becomes really nuanced because the stereotypes around Caribbean um, families and how they perceive education is that it's not important. So you get these kind of um, stereotypes, which maybe in your youth work you've heard about baby daddies and, you know, single parent families, a lot of Caribbean families, you know, it's just the mum at home. So, you know, the boys don't see it as important, particularly boys um, don't see it as important. And that's actually written in some of the textbooks as well, may I add, that that's, um, that's apparently a trend. So that, that textbook had to be taken off the shelf because that's clearly not true. So I think where you get less of that in maybe um, Black African, um, Southeast Asian cultures, it's because I would say that the stereotype is that these cultures aspire to good education, you know, like your Chinese families you know, African families and education is important. You're going to go into business. You're going to be a doctor or you're going to be a lawyer. Uh, but there's still this prevailing stereotype that in the Caribbean, particularly um, Afro-Caribbean families, so maybe Jamaica, Trinidad, you know, all those sort of the West Indian islands, education is not as important. Every, you know, and that stereotype which you which you um, 
which you just outlaid, which I do yes. think is what some teachers do think. And I do think yeah. it's what people, I do know some white people who do think that. Um, and we'll jump to that kind of conclusion mm. was that actually, if you go to Jamaica and you go to Barbados and you go to Trinidad, the um, the attainment in education is and the education standards are one of the highest in the world. Absolutely. They, they and it's in the top 3% in the world. Children, in terms- they want their children to attain. My dad made it, clear to me and my brothers how important education was because he wasn't able to do what he had to do because he came over in the windrush so he wasn't able to use his skills when he came over you know the streets weren't paved with gold he found that out very quickly and for him it was really important for my mum it was very important however we still have all these years later these prevailing attitudes and they're wrong and they're stereotypical there will always be somebody who fits that narrative you know we'll always be able to find an example of something for somebody somewhere but on the whole, I can tell you for a fact, these these families want their children to succeed. But there is also disadvantage, and we're talking about poverty. We're talking about so many different things that. So you would concede there are. So there are. You wouldn't say the entire factors are to do with um, specifically education. It's no, also not it's entirely. also to do that with elements of. Uh, as, you, as you mentioned, poverty. I mean, also, you know, the, the lowest education achievement um, in the country is a, a white working class boys. We don't necessarily mm-hmm. break things down sometimes in, ter- in terms of in terms of class, um, yeah, in terms of um, in terms of exclusion rate. Yeah. Um, the actual the highest is not black Caribbean peoples. It's Roma and it's Irish travellers, which is ten times yeah. the amount. So, and that I guess is even more of a. Uh, I guess what's a, what's the word a sort of cultural gap t- t- of understanding for teachers to get their head round as well. Yeah. Uh, what, you know, because some people listening will be well, you know, well, hang on a minute. Sort of, what about personal responsibility, or of what course. about if a child is misbehaving in a school environment and being disruptive, whether they are um, Black Caribbean, Roma, yep. white white British, or whatever, you know how. Uh, you know, what about the other pupils in the yeah. class? That you know, what, should we not be thinking about them? Of course we should. But I think what we should be doing is saying we need to teach these young people about accountability. And by t- by doing that, that's that conversation that you have where you say, listen, this is what you've just done. This is what it means. This yeah. is how you have affected somebody else. This is how this other person's affected you. Everything's around education, because otherwise we're just in a system where it's punitive and it's punishment. And we're not teaching them in anything except being fearful. And yeah. ultimately, um, when you talk about the other, I mean, we have a guide in No More Exclusions called What About the Other 29? And I would urge people to read it. It's free. So I would urge people to read it and have a look at it because we answer all those questions around what about the other kids in the room? And I don't think that you should have to manage. As a teacher myself, I wouldn't want to have to manage a very disruptive child 24-7 with no support and help because that would be really hard. However, what I will say is you can remove that child from the room from the moment even because something's not working for that child, but you don't have to remove them from education. So what should we do in that situation if we're not going to exclude? We need to have more trauma-informed support in schools. And by that, I mean people trained in trauma-informed support, people trained in um, adverse childhood experiences. And when I say trained, I don't mean an afternoon listening to someone talking. But I mean, really getting that hands-on training and that support. We need staff who get trained to deal with their own emotions as well. Um, I think we've talked a lot about the children, but actually when you are having an interaction with a child, 
you've got to work on your own emotional stability in that moment because actually well, it's anger which is making you have that child at that class let me jump in let me just jump in there if i can sorry to yeah. interrupt that, that actually what's interesting is so you know when i was a youth and i worked in prisons as well we would have regular supervision sure. and we were offered external supervision yeah. with psychologists and counselors my sister is a, is a senior social worker she gets that every month external yeah. counseling to work through some of your own stuff um, that you may be and your own reactions and your own triggers Absolutely. and your own bits of trauma that you bring with you because actually Absolutely. one teacher may react teachers don't get any of that really do they no you don't I mean if you are well, certainly not as much as they should no what I would say is if you are in the safeguarding team um, you might get supervision and I think that that's necessary for lots of different things that happen um, and you know um, scenarios that you'll be presented with but across the board if you ask most teachers most support workers in a school um, even myself as a Senko, we do not get supervision unless we pay for that ourselves or we seek it out ourselves. And I actually think it's absolutely necessary. Your own mental health and well-being, your own emotional intelligence is key to be able to manage, you know, because at the end of the day, when you are sending that young person out, it's often because you are losing control of the way you feel and how that young person is presenting that behaviour. Now, I'm not saying these children are angels because sometimes young people can be quite challenging in the way they present how they're communicating. But every behaviour is a communication. It's a form of communication. That young person's communicating something to you. And in that moment, you make a decision. And the decision is either I will manage you in the moment and I will say, look, I'll come back to you, calm down, take a few minutes outside and then come back. Or you're going to send that child out and then you've ruined the rest of their day. You've also ruined your own day as well because now you're upset and angry and that child's upset and angry. The parents will probably have to be called in if it gets, if it escalates. And you can just see the snowball effect, can't you? And actually, if at the start of that interaction, you'd had the skills to be able to manage that situation. And I'm not saying that teachers don't have these things anyway, but even more so then you could, uh, what's the word, de-escalate it really quickly. And that's part of the training, the de-escalation. You, know, you don't just have a go at your children when they've upset you. You know, you, you get to a point, don't you? And then you try to bring it down. Why are we not doing this with other people's children? I would like people to treat... Is this asking a lot? Is, the, is that asking a lot for a teacher um, that's done a one-year tra- teacher training course that comes from, you know, we'll yeah. do that per- person again, to be um, teaching, teaching, you know, a, a big class of, of pupils, 30 young, you know, children. Yeah. That's quite, a, and then, and then there's, you know, two or three that are highly disruptive. They're not really, you know, that's a big ask for them to be able to, um, to deal with that. But is the alternative to stick with what we've got, which we know then makes it five times more likely, 10 times more likely onto the school to prison pipeline. You're spending £30,000 a placement to go into a PRU sometime. That 30 grand could be spent, or 18 to 30, depending on where you are in a country, that could easily be spent on all the support that I'm outlining now. So the schools yeah. are ready. It should Youth be. Youth offending same. institutes, I think, uh, are 80 to, to 90,000 a year. It's, um, it's absolutely crazy. People. Let me just check some stats uh, out to people. So the latest Department for Education figures show that um, in 2020-21, there were 5,146 permanent excuse, exclusions in the in England. Uh, Bristol has a relatively low permanent exclusion rate, uh, seven across all state-funded schools. But we've got a very high fixed-term exclusion rate, 4,483 in the same year, which is pretty high compared to most 
yeah, local it's one authority of the areas. Yeah, yeah. Um, and but this is quite topical now. There's been an article about you in in the uh, Bristol Cable, mm-hmm. and um, uh, kind of recently, uh, there's been zero exclusions policies introduced in uh, in Southwark, London Borough of Southwark. Um, council chiefs are sort of getting behind this bit. This is bubbling up a bit, even in Bristol. Uh, the Bristol youth mayors have called on schools to completely stop excluding students. That's been backed by the mayor, Marvin Rees, who actually said himself that this particular um, issue was, this is a quote, very close um, to me. Um, so this is gathering a bit of weight and a bit of momentum now, you're, you're, um, you know, what you've been driving and pushing for, for yeah. quite some time. Yeah. Um, I think that people are now beginning to realise that the, be- the things that I've been talking about, and it's not just me, there's lots of other people where we're saying don't exclude these children. You know, it's not, it's traumatic for them. It's not helpful. It's it's limiting their life chances and so on and so forth. People are now beginning to see the impact of it because through COVID where children were at home and they couldn't go into school and then the schools were open for the vulnerable children. So then they would be able to get some time in school they were starting to see how actually children can manage when they have a different approach. But we're also seeing mentally how difficult the pandemic was for a lot of children and that, that, you know, their coping strategies weren't as good. So when they've come back to school now, they're really struggling sort of socially, emotionally and mentally with being back in crowds and back into a routine. And I think that's what's kind of pushed it that actually, yeah, if this is what we're doing with young people on a regular basis, gosh, you know, maybe this, we need to look at this situation differently. So I'm really glad that it's starting to shift. I am sceptical, I'm not going to deny that, about some of the more official uh, voices saying that they're behind it because we've been pushing this for a long time and no one wanted to hear it. And all of a sudden, there seems to be an interest. So, you know, I am sceptical, but if the outcome is... We when you get... say official voices, do you mean the mayor? I'm just going to say official voices, yeah. <laughs> okay. If I was running a institution or an establishment with the children, they wouldn't be excluded. Um, I okay. believe every child is worth saving. I believe yeah. every child is worth the extra mile. I wouldn't be in this job if I didn't feel that way. And I do see them as children. And I think that's really important that we remember we don't um, use adultification with these young people because we talk about these young children as, oh, these young men, these young women, they're children. And their, yeah. their adolescent brain hasn't quite got where it needs to be yet. So we need to remember that us as adults, we need to take charge and be the ones who help and support them through that as well. So if it were me, I would have um, emotional healing spaces. I would have trauma-informed support on hand. I would have um, a curriculum that is about them, looks like them, has included them, because part of that is making sure that the curriculum is really interesting. Kids don't misbehave when they're not bored. Some people have used the term decolonising the classroom a bit, you know, history, talking about figures in history or issues that are relevant to to young people's, you know, from certain communities that have been just ignored in the the, the national curriculum, yeah? Yeah, so I'm talking about anti-racism in the curriculum, but I'm also talking about relevancy of the curriculum. So why are we talking about, for example, if somebody's really struggling with maths, but we're still putting them through a maths GCSE, we could be doing financial studies, working with money. Do you know what I mean? There's so many Well, it's not really the whole education. It's not really, it's sort of outdated now, isn't it, in this new technology age, isn't it, really, what people are learning. I mean, even my, you know, I probably... I reckon 95% of what I learned at school has been utterly irrelevant to my life, really. I think it probably is for a lot of us, (laughs) you know, and that's why schools can be more of an informative, um, inspiring and enriching place if the curriculum 
was relevant if the teachers were fully trained and supported. And it is about supporting mm. our educators, not just hanging them out to dry, but yeah. supporting them as well. It's also about connecting with the parents, connecting with the community. I mean, they say it takes a village to raise a child. Where's the mm. village? The current government and the, the current uh, education minister. Yeah. They're kind of, I guess, pushing back and trying to put the sort of lid on the Pandora's box. Yeah. Um, and actually, you know, reinsert traditional education. You know, they're almost wanting it. Latin and sort of vocabulary stuff will be back on the curriculum soon. You know, it's almost sure. like they're trying to take things back to this even more sort of British-centred sort of traditional, because they see, I think, the education system as being all these sort of lefty, uh, liberal, woke, woke people. people. Yeah, all yeah. of that kind of stuff. So um, it's going to be a bit of a fight to ever get to that place. Well, we're here, we're ready, we're fighting. I mean, what I would say is um, Audrey Lord wrote in her book, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. So I know it's not going to be anything that, you know, anything that they've grown or developed, they're not going to allow us to use to try to dismantle it. So it's going to have to come right from the ground up. And we're ready to do that because we want to save these young people. And I think that I understand people are concerned about, but what about the most violent child or what about this or what about that? But that accounts for less than 1% of exclusions across the board, any form of physical violence. All that stuff, uh, you know, can be quite daunting, I think, for for teachers. Mm. I do think they're another wider... Yeah, and and, and without that support. And there is also a couple of, um, I guess, if we want good people... You know, people with with experience of some of the issues that young people are going through, some people that teachers that perhaps have an understanding, if not directly from that community, similar community. So we've got like a broader spectrum. The problem probably you're going to have now is um, and I know you're you're a member of the uh, of, of the National Education Union. That's correct. Yeah, so you're quite involved in that. Is that is and 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 soon there potentially is going to be a strike on pay. That's correct. Um, no longer. I would, I'm going to chat this out, you know, is the teaching profession mm-hmm. uh, with how much it costs you to go to university now and the, and the starting salaries, which seem to be, um, they're definitely not increasing, you know, no. cost of living increase, but they're plateauing. Is that mm. now a, a, a vocation of choice for working class people sure. as it once was black, black and white yeah, and, bra- and brown? Yeah. I would say it's now become more problematic to think about becoming a teacher. It's not necessarily as attractive, is it? Um, you know, what we do every day, no one day is the same. I love my job and I love working with young people and they are crazy and they drive me crazy sometimes. I'm sure I drive them crazy at times as well, but it's just such fun. However, with all the things such as the cost of living increasing and the the real term cuts and the, the low increases it's becoming really hard I mean I know teachers now who are probably have been in the profession one or two years who have now got weekend jobs so that they can they can make ends meet I mean that's ridiculous especially when you think of all the student loans and all the money it costs why would you want to go into teaching if that's what yeah and if you were yeah if you were a bright you know ambitious the private sector will pay a lot more um, so people are going into yeah. instead of I don't know instead of being a geography teacher they can go out and do geology or something instead yeah um, and that's a shame because we're losing some of the best people because the the you know the uh, wages 
the salary, the the benefits, inverted commas. Yeah, and, and also the stress, the stress high, that we've yeah. spoken about, the, the, you know, the, yeah. the big classrooms, the fact that um, so my granddad, my granddad was a teacher, was a deputy head up at the old um, uh, um, Green Greenway School in Southmead. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, in that era, you know, I would imagine he was able to teach sort of pupils in, in the variety of different ways. And sure. whereas now it's a very set, you know, even from primary school, isn't it? You've got your SAT, your SATs, and That's you've got right. your very fixed national curriculum that, you know, being tested regularly. Yeah, it's just like when a teacher's right? role was educating and teaching a, a young person to be critical, wasn't it? And to, yeah. to, and how to think. And, and that, that's, you know, so I don't know if... We're not doing point, that anymore. I don't, you're not I doing don't, that, no. I don't think so. I think we are, if you speak to many teachers, particularly, uh, I would say, secondary, um, I think there might be a little bit more leeway in primary, um, that we don't necessarily all feel that we're having that ability to have those critical conversations and teach your young people how to be critical, open-minded and look at things in different ways. We are simply trying to get through syllabuses. We're trying to get through exams. You know, we've got a certain amount of weeks. We've got a certain topics we've got to get done. It just, the joy of it is becoming... Massive classroom sizes as yeah, well. workload you issues, know. you know, meetings and long days. And it's, you know, lots of people say... Lots of people say, oh, well, you get the six weeks off or you go home at 3.30. Um, we don't get six weeks off. And when we go home at 3.30, we're back onto our emails and preparing for the next day. That was it. Oh, yeah, so 52% said uh, their workload was, uh, this is a quote, unmanageable or unmanageable most of the time. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. That's yeah, more than I half. I agree with that. It's, it's, it's horrific. I mean... I, I love my job. I love teaching. And I would I would say to people, it's an amazing career to have. But I am also 20 odd years in. So I'm a little bit more long in the tooth with it. And there's lots of things that I can do now. And I'm in, and I'm in different roles. Um, but what I would say is it's a great job. It's one of the best jobs in the world when you can just, you know, you hit that sweet spot with the young people. And it's just a great you just had a great day. But Equally, I would be lying if I didn't say it is one of the most stressful and most difficult. And politically, teachers have had a really hard time over the pandemic where people think they haven't been working when they have been working their socks off. Not because you know, just because we haven't been in the building, it doesn't mean we weren't online and we weren't doing stuff. Um, Do you think obviously this industrial action, which is specifically about pay, yeah, um, which was a, I think a rejection of a current five percent pay rise, That's right? Yeah. Um, which is uh, effectively, when you think about inflation being at 11.7%, yeah, is actually a, a 7% pay cut. Yeah. And we've obviously seen all this with the RMT trade transport right, workers. Yeah. We've, we've had um, uh, Brendan Kelly from the RMT on the show talking about similar stuff. But he also said that whilst it was about pay, it's, you know, there was also a little bit about some of the conditions that oh, they're yeah. working in. Do you feel that, that obviously this, this strike is, is specifically about pay, but there's a number of other issues that have brought teachers to want to come out and strike as well? Yeah, absolutely. The sort of stuff we're talking about now, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I would stand in solidarity with all the RMT uh, trade unions. As we have, we've just had enough. Yeah. We're seeing people across the board now in different sectors that have just had enough. Yes, and and, and they feel powerless, so they're getting out on the streets from the from the you know even even the bloody um, uh, the lawyers were out there protesting yes, yeah. the other week, weren't they? Um, uh, yeah. Why is that? Yeah. Why is that, Lana? Why where's this coming from? This, um, I think, from my perspective, I look at it and think. I think the little people, and that's how we felt, I've just had enough. We just, we can't be treated like this anymore. 
what we do is educate and talking about teachers in particular but you can look at all the public services your your nurses your doctors your social workers your fire um fire stations you know they the service they provide your paramedics and we're just we just feel trampled on we feel not seen it's very similar to the kids you feel not heard you feel disrespected this kind of um polarizing politics that people have used you know uh to sort of denigrate if you like certain people such as the teachers versus the doctors oh well the doctors and nurses are doing so much more we're all do we're all playing our part and in fact if we don't come into school and your children can't get educated today I understand that inconveniences you and that is not my role I don't want to do that but I need the people who have the power to make the changes to understand the impact it has on my life too it isn't just about your life, it's also about our lives as well and our children and our standards of living and our mental health and our well-being. As you said, 44% of teachers burning out and leaving and then, you know, even teachers at the other end of the spectrum are a bit older asking for early retirement because they can't cope anymore because the pace of it is just too high. Something's got to give. So I think we've all kind of joined arms and realised we do it together, we can get people to see that this isn't just about I want more money. It's not that basic. It's much more complex than that. We have spoken for um, for quite a long time. <laughs> we, we, we've gone over. Uh, I hadn't even got to talking about the uh, the local send uh, crisis yet because I know I guess you're connected yeah. to that for your for your role. I am. Um, we've covered a lot of stuff. Very extensive. I reckon we could have talked for twice that amount of time. Quite likely, I think we could have been here for a very long time. Yeah. Thank you ever so much, Lana. It's been uh, brilliant talking to you. Thank you. Many thanks to teacher and founder of No More Exclusions, Lana Crosby, for joining us this week on Bristol Unpacked. And we'll be back next week with a fantastic topic and another great guest. Thanks for listening to Bristol Unpacked. I'm Neil Maggs. And a big thank you to Afra Evans, our audio editor, Adam Cantwell-Corn, our executive producer, and Blue Dot for our music. And to hear more episodes of Bristol Unpacked, you can head to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Acast, or any podcatchers that you listen to your podcasts in. <laughs>